6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 53. In this case, most scholars, I think, recognize that this stream of consciousness starts in verse 13 of chapter 52. That's why we stopped a little short last time. Because I really regard chapter 53 as beginning, in effect, at verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant. That starts it off. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Well, that can mean lots of things. What does the word extolled mean? It means to be raised up. And Jesus himself comments on what this means, strangely enough. You could say he's exalted in many ways. We exalt him in our praises. But that's not, I don't believe, what he's talking about. I believe he explained this word to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Let's pop over to John 3. We all know John 3. It's the famous passage that leads to the cliché. It's a phrase that's really become, tragically, a cliché. To be born again. Nicodemus, one of the major rulers, teachers, comes to Jesus. And they have an interesting discussion, and we obviously won't digress in all of that. But in the middle of that, verse 14, Jesus says to Nicodemus a strange thing. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now that's a strange phrase. You have to remind yourself what happened back in Numbers chapter 21. The people were murmuring, they sinned. God sent a pestilence in the form of serpents with a deadly bite. And these serpents would bite people, they died. The people recognized that this was a response to their sin. And they went to Moses and said, do something. We confess, we repent, and all of that. So Moses prays, and God says, okay, take a brass serpent, put it on a pole, and put it up on a hill, and everybody that looks to that serpent will be healed. Now, if you're honest with yourself, you sort of sit back and say, that's weird. You know, I mean, if God wants to heal them, you'd think there would be more direct ways of doing it. God is doing something else here, isn't he? And I'm sure if you were Moses or some of his friends at that time, you're grateful that you had a remedy for the serpents, but I would imagine, I'm conjecturing, you're probably puzzled as to why that particular mechanic. Weird idea, isn't it? Everyone that looked to that brazen serpent was healed. And of course, you know the story, the brass serpent, that whole, that whole episode gets, gets carried to Alexandria and becomes the basis of some Greek legends. It's the background for Aesculapius, the Greek god of healing, and which of course is symbolized by a serpent 
on a, on a pole, the pole, of course, being a cross, interestingly enough. I'm always amused by that because you'll often find that on a license plate with two serpents wrapped around a pole. See, the guy that designed the symbol for the U.S. Army Medical Corps didn't do his homework. He knew about Escalapius and the serpent on the, on the pole, but he thought to make it symmetrical, I'll put two, not knowing that that's not the symbol of Escalapius, the god, the god of medicine. That's the symbol of Hermes, the god of commerce. And every time I see that on a license plate, I chuckle to myself at the candor of it all. You heard about the doctor who told the guy he only had six months to live. The guy says, I can't pay your bill. He says, no problem. I'll give you another six months to live. <laughs> it's interesting that that brazen serpent, of course, becomes a fetish. And hundreds of years later, Hezekiah has to destroy it because it's still around the people and they're worshiping it. You should remember that. Whereas the Shroud of Turin or some splinters from Noah's Ark or whatever, those things are dangerous. Even if they're valid. The brazen serpent was valid, but it became a fetish. It's interesting that God doesn't use symbols in that sense. Satan does. Whether swastikas or crescent moons or whatever. Okay, um, back to the subject. Jesus says in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up. This is what we're talking about in Isaiah. Being lifted up how? Like the serpent. Everyone that looked to the serpent of Moses was given life, didn't die from the serpents. Jesus says here in verse 15 that he'll be son of man lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. Aha. Now we begin to understand why God had Moses do that peculiar approach to healing the people because it served another purpose. Yes, it was practical to them at the time, but it also serves as an instruction for us. You say, Jack, that's a strange symbol, though, a brass serpent. Why brass? Brass was the metal that Levitically speaks of judgment, because brass was the metal that could sustain fire. So brazen altars, brass spoke of fire, of judgment. The serpent, of course, speaks of the curse, the entrance of sin. Genesis 3, you know the story. You mean to tell me that a symbol of Jesus Christ is a brass serpent? Yes. That's strange to our understanding until we read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's just take a look at that to get that in our focus. Because my main conjecture tonight is that no matter how much you study the cross, it's my personal conviction that you'll never fully understand it. We'll talk about the cross physically. We'll talk about the cross in several other dimensions. But the more you learn of it, the more you will learn that you probably can't learn it all. First Corinthians chapter, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 5. In verse 21, it says that God hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You see, it's strange. We think of the brazen serpent as a symbol of Jesus Christ. But you see, at the cross, that's exactly what he was. The innocent, perfect, pure, unblemished Christ was made sin for us. 
And I submit to you that there's no way we can comprehend that statement. You and I have just a glimpse of what sin really is. The small glimpse we have terrifies us if you understand. And yet, we also have but a superficial insight of what, what is righteous, what is a perfect, righteous Christ. How can you make him sin? It's the two ultimate extremes. And yet that's what was happening on that hill in Judea 2,000 years ago. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, have eternal life. That's the issue tonight, my friends. Nothing you can do can add to it. Jesus Christ has completed on your behalf. What's your work? What's your job? What's your commitment? To believe it. To claim it. God has prepared a destiny for you that's so fantastic that there's no way you can earn it. There's no way you can be eligible for it. The only one eligible for it is Jesus Christ personally. And he's gone to some rather bizarre extremes to allow his eligibility to be available to you, but for the asking. That's what Isaiah 53 is going to lay out for us. So let's get back to Isaiah 53. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. But then we get to verse 14, and this is an interesting verse. You know, the King James translators were probably among the most faithful team that's ever been put together for such a task. They did an incredible job, all things considered. We may... We may um, get discouraged with some of the old English and some of those problems, fine, but they certainly were devoted. But there are a couple of places, and this is the best-known one, where they apparently deliberately softened the text because they didn't think you could handle the literal translation. Verse 14 always strikes me like double talk. As many were astounded at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man, dash, then he goes on. What does that mean? Not sure. But let's find out, and most of your study Bibles will have some equivalent footnote as the following, that the literal rendering of the Hebrew puts it right between the eyes. So marred from the form of man was his aspect, that his appearance was not that of a son of a man. What does that mean? He was so beaten, so abused, so torn up that he was unrecognizable. And of course, just by way of remembrance, it's interesting that as we study his post-resurrection appearances, we can't help but notice some strange things. On the Emmaus Road, those two guys who were so upset that he was, uh, what happened in the last three days, that when he joins them, they don't recognize him. These aren't strangers. These are disciples. And yet they don't recognize him. He gives them a Bible study. Speaks of himself in the third person. I always love that. They don't recognize him until when they're sitting down to eat, Jesus breaks bread. Our conjecture, just a conjecture, but our conjecture is that they saw the nail prints and realized who was among them. And that evening, again, he appears among his disciples. These aren't strangers. Now, the disciples are astonished. That's understandable. They're terrified. Why? It's the Lord. Even if it's a spirit, why should they be frightened? And of course, he's not a spirit. He says, handle me and see. And by the way, got anything to eat? And yet they're frightened. Mary Magdalene, 
Where have they taken him? Where have they taken my Lord? And she thinks he's the gardener. Until he says Mary, and she recognizes his voice. Here's one who worshipped him, and yet didn't recognize him. And of course, the most interesting part, perhaps, is by the seashore in John 21. They fish all night, don't find anything. He from the, from the shore says, put your net on the other side. And of course they do, and it fills with fish. And John realizes, hey, that's the Lord. So Peter dives in. For them not to recognize him from the boat when he's ashore, that's understandable. But then when they get to shore, and they bring their fish ashore and so forth. What has he done? He's baked some bread and he's cooked some fish for breakfast. And there's that strange verse in John 21, verse 14. None of us dared ask him, for we knew it was him. What does that mean? John's giving us a hint. There's something about him that makes him unrecognizable by his closest friends. Verse 14 is probably the key to it. Isaiah 52, verse 14. And many were astounded at thee. His visage was so marred more than any man, his form more than the sons of men. Or putting it more precisely. So marred from the form of man was his aspect that his appearance was not that of a son of a man. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I read that, that they apparently ripped off his beard. Why is all this so relevant? Because we know from his resurrection evidences that he still bears the nail prints in his hands and the wound in his side. What we don't have recorded and what we infer is that his face and his body also still bears the marks of his humiliation, as we glibly call it. Boy, what an understatement that is. But let's go on and find out why. What's the result of all this gruesome detail? Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle actually comes from the same root as marvel, or the Septuagint marks it as, as marveled, because it comes from the same root as being astonished. However, the word itself is used in Leviticus 14.7 and 4.6 and 8.11 to mean ritual sprinkling that's done by one who is pure and innocent. It's a term from the Levitical offerings. Yes, he shall sprinkle. But the sprinkler, the one that's doing the sprinkling, by Levitical definition has to be pure and innocent. Was Jesus Christ pure and innocent? Absolutely. And we could bore you with verse after verse after verse to prove that. The one that I always prefer is the words of Satan himself when he incarnated Judas, but then blurts out, Behold, I have betrayed innocent blood. That's one of the few times I'll take Satan's word for it. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The king shall shut their mouths at him, and that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which had, they had not heard shall they consider. I always think about that. You know, it's interesting as you and I go about our business, even our condescending friends will sort of smile at us that we're so preoccupied with the Bible and things of the Lord. And, and uh, while they're busily collecting the receivables, generating new business, uh, whatever, you know. And they smile at us, thinking even 
in the most patronizing way, at least, that, uh, okay, at least we're, we're in, you know, what harm can it cause, you know? How interesting it's going to be when they really get the perspective and to realize that everything else in the world that we spend our time on is wood, hay, and stubble. I think about that a lot. You know, I spent my career 30 years in trying to fix it companies and invent things and sell things and build things, and, and I've had my successes and failures. But as I look back, it's interesting how incredibly unimportant that all is. You know? I've had, I've had some interesting times. We saved a company, provided a lot of employment, uh, invented some products. And yet, you look back, and what's really relevant are the people who come up with tears in their eyes because they've grown in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Boy, do you get different perspective. And I always think of that here. The kings, you know, shall shut their mouths and for that which had not been told them shall they see. And that which they had not heard shall they consider. Boy, is the world, the leadership, going to be in shock as they realize that Jesus Christ really was who he said he was, or is, I should say. I put it in the subjunctive, not the past tense. Then it continues, chapter 53, verse 1. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? John tells us he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Centuries of special disclosure through the prophets and what have you, paving the way, and yet when he shows up, they don't recognize him. He presents himself as king to Jerusalem on the very day. Five centuries earlier, Gabriel told Daniel it would happen on that very day. And it does, and it happens on the day, and they blow it. And Jesus says, for this reason, for that very reason, Jerusalem will be destroyed. In 70 AD it was. Because they did not recognize the day of your visitation. Luke tells us in chapter 19, verse 44. Who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he... Now let me pause for a minute. This passage... There are many passages in Isaiah that are sort of poetically like double references. There's a sense in which they can apply to the nation Israel, because it's, the nation is sometimes spoken of as a person. There are other places, of course, those references refer specifically to the Mashiach, the Messiah. In some of the passages, it is, candidly, possible to bend it either way. And that's exactly what some of the rabbis try to do with chapter 53, except we'll discover, as we study it carefully, the language is far too specific, far too crisp to be limited to some kind of allegorical model. Isaiah 53 is divided into stanzas, and each stanza starts with a personal pronoun, he. He shall grow up. He hath borne our griefs. He hath carried our sorrows, and so on. You'll see it as we go. For he shall grow up before him like a tender plant and like a root out of a dry ground. The word tender, it actually means a fresh sprout. It's a strange word in the Hebrew. You en you've encountered it once before, but didn't recognize it. In Genesis chapter 22, God tells Abraham to do a strange thing. Offer your son Isaac on a mountain that I'll show you. Take thy son, thine only son, when we find that phrase in Genesis 22, we stumble over it because we know Abraham has two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. But for the purpose of that passage, God is focusing on the son of the promise, Isaac. 
take thine only son. Why does he say that? Well, we realize, of course, that Abraham is acting out prophecy. Abraham knew that. They go up on a hill. At the last minute, God substitutes a ram. And Abraham names the place Jehovah Jireh. In the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. It's a prophetic name. He knew it was prophetic somehow. How much he knew is subject to conjecture. He knew that Isaac had to be resurrected. God promised that he'd have children. Want me to kill him? Fine. You've got a problem, God. Abraham had learned a lot by the time he gets to chapter 22. And, of course, we recognize now that 2,000 years later on that very spot, another father offered his only son as an offering for you and I. But it's interesting that this word tender here is the same word as the word only in the Hebrew in Genesis 22, verse whatever it was. And like a root out of a dry ground, the idea of root was mentioned to us in the 10th verse of chapter 11 of Isaiah as a title of Jesus Christ, the root of David. The title is picked up in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Root in the sense of a... It's a root, but it's a root of a family tree, you see. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. You know, it's interesting. That, to my knowledge, is the only physical description of Jesus Christ in the, in the Bible. It's interesting that of all the things we know about him, that we don't have a physical description of him. We don't know what color his eyes were or how tall he was, or all that's conjecture. What do we have about him physically? Well, that he hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, I have no idea if that's referring to his natural state prior to the crucifixion. It certainly seems to, from other evidences, to describe the aspect after his resurrection. But it's interesting that that was prophesied also in another way. One of the studies that you need to undertake, and again, I won't take the time to go in detail here, I'll just summarize it, is to study the tabernacle in Exodus and study it with the insights from the New Testament. When uh, Charles Heston comes down from Mount Sinai, I just want to see if you're listening, okay. I'll speak more softly so we don't wake some. Um, under one arm, you should have the two tables of stone. I've always conjectured that he really under the other arm should have a set of engineering blueprints because God gave him, gave Moses, in addition to the, ten, the law, the Ten Commandments, he also gave him some very explicit, detailed engineering specifications for a portable sanctuary that God wanted Moses to build so that he, he God, could dwell among his people. And we have this strange structure called the tabernacle, and we study it. It's very important to study, first of all, so you really understand both the tabernacle and the, and the subsequent temples, but also... It's interesting because it is so detailed, and when that's detailed, you know it's replete with symbolism. Portable structure. A courtyard, so to speak, circumscribed by a linen fence above eye level. White linen with posts and set on brass sockets, posts and, you know, uh, laced up so that the, it would perform an effective fence. You go through the one door, one opening, the gate. You go through that. First thing you encounter is the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice, where all the Levitical offerings were, of course, offered. Next, a brass laver where they were priests washed. Now, the symbolism of those is pretty obvious. The brazen altar being the altar of sacrifice, speaking of the cross, ultimately. 
The brazen laver, or where the priests wash, is analogous to the Word of God. How do we know it from Ephesians 4? Now ye are clean through the washing of the water by the Word which I have spoken unto you. The priests washing it, we wash what? With the Word every day. You're washed twice. You're washed once and for all judicially in the blood of Christ. But you're washed every day in the Word. When you've offered the offerings and you've washed, prepared yourself, then you confront the tabernacle proper. Before I get into that, what's inside, of course, as you enter the door on the left is the menorah, the seven-branched lampstand. On the right, table of showbread with 12 loaves, one for each of the 12 tribes, changed every Shabbat. And just in front of, associated with, but just in front of the Holy of Holies, is this golden altar, three foot high, altar of incense offered, incense offered every morning and evening. And of course, through the veil on the other side was the Ark of the Covenant. And of course, it's lid, as we would call it, the, the, the solid gold lid called the mercy seat. It's kind of interesting to consider the tabernacle proper, this building, this portable building, made of vertical planks, planks apparently made of acacia wood, the thorn bush of the desert, the same material that was the burning bush, and it wasn't, wrapped in gold, planks wrapped in gold, speaking of his humanity and his deity. These planks were set vertically with, whole, with uh, rings so that horizontal poles could make it a rigid structure. And they enclosed a space of roughly 15 feet wide, about 30 feet deep for the first room, and then a 15-foot cubicle space behind it, the Holy of Holies. Roughly 45 feet by 15 feet. To give you a rough feeling, a rough idea, without quarreling about what, exactly how long a cubit was. The point that's interesting, though, is these, these, these uh, planks, as I would call them, were wrapped in gold, must have made an incredibly beautiful structure, solid gold building. Not solid gold, I mean it's wrapped in wood, but I mean it's gold. You go inside, you've got everything inside the tabernacle is gold, everything outside is brass. Tabernacle itself rests on silver sockets. And that's interesting because Levitically we discover that silver represents blood. The temple redemptive coin was silver. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.